This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Black Lives. Dad, wake up, we have to leave. Five more minutes. No more minutes. Okay, roll film. Would you like that a protein? That stuff causes cancer in laboratory animals, in case you didn't know. Either I chew gum or I smoke. What are these children, yours? That's mine from Wives 1 and 3. There's Babette's from Husband 2. Wilder is ours. We're each other's fourth. Life is good, Jack. I hope it lasts forever. Let's watch a sitcom or something. No! They're calling it the Airborne Toxic Event. They won't come this way. Will we have to leave our home? Of course not. How do you know? I just know. Okay, what if it's dangerous? Evacuate all places of residence. We have a situation. All we have to do is stay out of the way. They're passing us, Dad. Technically, that's illegal. <laughs> Ask your father. We're going sideways. Dad, do sheep have lashes? Doesn't anyone want to pay attention to what's actually happening? I wish there was something I could do. I wish I could outthink the problem. There are two kinds of people in the world. Killers and dyers. Most of us are dyers. Of some persistent sense of large-scale ruin, we keep inventing hope. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for White Noise, and the story is as follows. White Noise dramatizes a contemporary American family's attempts to deal with the mundane conflicts of everyday life while grappling with the universal mysteries of love, death, and the possibility of happiness in an uncertain world. The film is starring Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig, Don Cheadle, Rafi Cassidy, Jody Turner-Smith, Andre L. Benjamin, and Lars Eidinger. It is written and directed by Noah Baumbach, and here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Dan Baer. Hello, everybody. And Brendan Hodges. Hey there. So, how do you deal 
with the knowledge of knowing that we will all die. Not great, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a question that is at the forefront here of this wildly ambitious, unlike anything he's ever done before, adaptation by Noah Baumbach of a very popular novel by Don DeLillo. And it is one that has been said to be unfilmable. It opened the Venice International Film Festival. Then it opened the New York Film Festival, both earlier this year. First time that a film's ever done that before. Now it is currently streaming on Netflix for everyone to watch. And it also follows Noah Baumbach's greatest success of his career with Marriage Story. So there's a lot of expectations heading into this. Uh, Him working again with Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig. So there's a lot of elements at play here. How do they all come together, especially in, like I said, what was very much a very tricky adaptation process? And then also, too, supposedly, from what I understand, a really chaotic, long, over-budgeted shoot as well. I don't know the exact budget on this movie, but I know it definitely got out of control at a certain point and ended up costing more than you would initially think. Uh, But as I mentioned before, it's quite unlike any other Noah Baumbach movie that he has made before, maybe since, I don't know, this could be the start of something new, or maybe it's a one-off, who knows, we'll have to wait and see on that note, but what did we ultimately think of it here? I guess we'll start off first with Brendan. Brendan, I understand that you're a fan of the book, uh, which makes one of us here, um, because I've never read it. Dan, have, have you read it? I have a long time ago, back in college. Okay, okay. So then I'm the only person that hasn't read it. Great. But in any event, Brennan, what did you think? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Don DeLillo. He's considered sort of one of the great living English language fiction writers today. Um, Many of his books, White Noise included, appear on many of the best books of the 20th century lists. Um, His book, Underworld, I think, was voted, you know, in the top five of the last X amount of decades. I'm a massive fan of his work. What struck me as soon as this project was announced is that this is one of the more peculiar novels to try to translate into a film, particularly for Noah Baumbach, who has never attempted anything like this before. Um, White Noise, as a book and as a film, doesn't really cohere into any kind of structure we would think of as a cinematic three-act movie structure. Um, There's really three-thirds of the book, but each one is quite its own thing. One doesn't necessarily lead to the next. And I was wondering, how the heck is he going to do this? Because the book mostly takes place on a college campus. It's kind of um, a satire of of academia, um, a satire of consumerism, late capitalism. Um, It's considered one of the great postmodern novels and deals with how our reality is increasingly image and advertisement based. It makes a big set piece out of the supermarket in the book. And there is this quote unquote airborne toxic event that you sure it kind of is like a disaster movie. But the book very much keeps that stuff relatively small scale and also relatively brief. Um, I found the film to be a very noble attempt 
a well-intentioned, if altogether misguided, swing at the plate to translate, first of all, a very challenging book to adapt into cinema. And I don't think he really pulled it off. Um, the book and Delillo in general has a really specific sense of dialogue that is sort of unnaturally natural or naturally unnatural. If, yeah. if you like, it's a very heightened style of dialogue. And for some reason, Noah Baumbach interpreted this dialogue and the world of the book as almost being cartoonish and sort of over the top instead of trying to bring a humanity to the dialogue, if that makes sense. He really cranks up the absurdity to a level that I think doesn't work. And a lot of people, I've read some reviews of uh, the, the film. I've read a lot of comments on Reddit, on Twitter. Very few of them don't mention how the dialogue plays and how the lines are delivered. The characters have kind of quirky haircuts, quirky, derpy outfits that you would associate with Noah Baumbach or his friend and occasional co-worker, Wes Anderson. Um, I thought the film for the most part, does not work. The sequences I found the most effective were, ironically, the ones that get away from the prose, which DeLillo was most known for. It's when the movie actually remembers it's supposed to be a movie. The sequences around the airborne toxic event almost have this kind of Spielbergian uh, wonder or terror to them that might recall images from Close Encounters of the Third Kind or War of the Worlds. and there's a De Palma-esque sequence at the end I, I, I found effective. There's even a split diopter shot. And those who know Bombach know he loves Brian De Palma. Um, but those are basically my, my thoughts. That The film, oddly enough for me, felt like an adaptation of a stage play more than an adaptation of a book for how mannered and exaggerated the performances were around the language. Um, it was a big disappointment for me. But I, to be honest, I never really thought uh, Bombuck would be able to turn the novel into a great movie. And unfortunately, I was right. Let me ask you this question, because you started off saying that this was a very noble attempt, if you will, at, uh, at uh, adapting this. Do you think it's possible that the book could have been adapted better? Or do you think this really is the best version that you possibly could get in cinematic form and that the book truly, really is unadaptable? It's interesting, Matt, because there's a big question about what makes an adaptable or unadaptable book. And people bring up Dune or Lord of the Rings because of the density of the world building and things like that. I actually don't think that is the biggest hurdle when it comes to adaptation. Agreed. Yeah, the biggest hurdle for, for I think, many people is when books, and I don't want to sound like a fucking idiot, but it's when they're particularly literary. Yeah. It's when... It's not the plot. It's not the characters. It's how the plot and the characters are expressed through language in a way that is very hard to convert into cinema. And I think the Lillo is particularly difficult to adapt, which is so peculiar why Netflix is buying up all these rights to De to uh, DeLillo novels to turn them into movies. His novel Underworld, I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, the person who directed Hidden Figures is making that into a movie, which, which is completely bizarre. So this is a long way around to answer your question by saying 
I really don't know if this book could ever make a great movie, but I do think it's possible to make this a better movie than the one that we got. But no matter what, there's going to be elements of it that I think fundamentally do not work unless you translate the novel to such an extent you lose a lot of what makes DeLillo DeLillo, if that makes sense. Sure. No, totally get it. Absolutely. Okay. Dan Bear, how about yourself? I know this is one that when it premiered over at NYFF, I know that you missed it and just recently caught up with it now. Uh, you know, after hearing about it for the last couple of months, uh, what did you think? Uh, I think some people are a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I Look, it has been a very long time since I read this novel. So talking about how good an adaptation is, I might be a little biased in that, like, my memories of it are more sort of vague and more macro than micro, so to speak. But on the whole, I just think, you know, it's kind of like what Brendan was saying, like, it's not necessarily a bad adaptation, but I don't think that there's really a great way to adapt this novel to film. I don't think it's unadaptable in that I think you can uh, do like a straight this happened, then this happened, then this happened adaptation of White Noise. But in order to capture what makes White Noise such a great novel, for me, that kind of storytelling works much better on the page than it does on the screen. And I know that I, I am like, that is very much just me. There are other films that aren't necessarily adapted from novels, but have a kind of novelistic storytelling tone to them that other people like a lot more than I do. But I just, good on you for trying, Noah Baumbach, but um, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you necessarily should. And for me, the story, what made the story so great on the page is kind of gone from the movie. For all that there are things that I think are good in the movie i i don't think it's a bad movie i especially love the production design and danny elfman's score and some of the dialogue is pretty good i did uh like brendan i kind of geeked out over the split diopter shot um especially coming where it did i absolutely got the de palma reference and that was pretty great but ugh, overall i just think like for me, in a book, it's a lot less difficult to absorb the nuances and complexities and subtleties of everything that DeLillo is writing about. Whereas on film, it's a lot harder to do that effectively. And I think that 
in Baumbach's filmmaking, he is chosen to focus, as you kind of have to, on like doing a this happened, then this happened, then this happened retelling of the plot of White Noise. And when he tries to get into the other stuff that it's about, the more conceptual ideas, the more satirical ideas, I don't think the film adopts a a consistent enough tone throughout to make me convinced that it's a really great movie. But it's not bad. I don't know. I think if you went and asked the average American audience member right now that are watching this on Netflix, they would probably tell you this is bad. <laughs> but it's interesting, though, because... While I do like a lot of the messaging of this movie, I I very much respond to the fear of death and the existentialism of this movie and the ways that the characters are choosing to deal with it by this kind of senseless dialogue at times and also to the consumerism. There's a lot going on here that I found to be interesting, but... As something that, like Brendan was saying earlier, I don't think it actually works as a movie. And it's interesting, too, to say that because there are so many cinematic techniques, scenes, and moments that Baumbach has never done before that other filmmakers have done. And he uses the cinematic medium in a way that I I found to be actually quite bold and exciting at times, especially for him. I've always liked him as a storyteller. You know, all of his movies that he's written before this were uh, original screenplays. This is his first adaptation. And the way that he works with actors, uh, you know, he may not be the most visually interesting filmmaker, in my opinion, but I've very much enjoyed a lot of his movies in the past. So here, I felt like I was getting an entirely different filmmaker, right? Because the words aren't necessarily his own. The stylistic flourishes are completely like turned up to 11 all of a sudden there's even just a a quirkiness to the characters that as brendan was saying earlier it borders on cartoonish and i was along for the ride i'm trying to think like around where because in the beginning i was finding it so hard to get into this movie despite everything that was being thrown at me And then I think by the time you get to the Airborne Toxic Event, which is the second chapter of this film, I started to definitely, you know, get more invested, I think, by that point because of some of the Spielbergian aspects as brought up uh, earlier. Then it kind of lost me again. (laughs) And then it didn't actually pull me back until the final scene. And I just had this sudden... Uh, almost eureka moment here of understanding what the movie was ultimately about. And that was a strong emotional connection that I think I would have gotten from reading the book for sure. Uh, But it was also something that, I mean, I eventually found it within the movie. It was just a really arduous mess to get there to that point. And so in that regard, It's hilarious to me that this is the most stylistic movie that Noah Baumbach has ever made before, and yet it's also the least (laughs) movie-like thing he's ever made before, uh, because it doesn't work cohesively as a story. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot of talking in this movie. Like, not surprising from a writer like Noah Baumbach, but the way in which it is talky does not feel like movie talky. It feels novel talky, or like Brendan said earlier, it feels like a play at times. It, It feels pointless and a waste of time, honestly. Yeah, I look, I love the idea of having dueling lectures. And that's probably the best scene in the film. But there are other times when these characters are talking to each other where I'm just like, nobody talks like that. Like, not even the stereotypes that you're talking about talk like that. (laughs) And also, too, like, how is this uh, pushing the story or the characters forward? It it almost feels like it's building up to a punchline that never quite delivers. And speaking of that, too, Dan... You mentioned the uh, scene with the dueling lectures where Don Cheadle's character is, uh, well, he wants to do like Elvis studies the same way that Driver's character uh, Jack does uh, Hitler studies. And he's like the person that has, I guess, started this whole curriculum. And what what, what I, I, I liked it in the moment, but then this realization eventually settles in, you know, I don't know how long after we get away from the first act in the movie that none of that was important. It doesn't actually play into anything that comes later on. Maybe there is some thematic undercurrent to it. Uh, I I don't know how much, you know, you want to read into it and like kind of piece it all together, but it really frustrated me that it just seemed to be this tangent that went nowhere. Well, that's sort of the problem in adapting white noise to the screen like as written the subject is america in the early 1980s like that's what it's about and in a book you can talk about all these different things about you know what's happening in academia and what's happening at the supermarket and what's happening in uh medicine and mental health. Or how about in American movies, starting off yeah, the movie talking exactly. about car crashes, yeah. right? You can talk about all those things in different parts and have it really come together and be like a, have them interact with each other in subtle thematic ways on the page that is really hard to do on screen. Yeah, and, and just to dovetail off that, Dan, Yeah. Um, I think that one thing that you really hit the nail on the head with is the fact that the book came out in the 80s and so much of what the book was doing was kind of revolutionary at the book's release. You know, Um, I mean, it came out in 85 and this idea of, you know, a postmodern critique of modernity and our culture increasingly uh, constructed by simulacrum, these false images or advertisements or whatever that in you know invoke invokes the 
I don't know, the philosophy of Baudrillard, who gets name-checked in The Matrix, and yeah. <laughs> hyper-reality and all this stuff, right? These ideas, weirdly enough, to your point, Dan, they've seeped into the language of how we talk about popular culture. They've, they've kind of become intuitively absorbed into our general critique of, um, oh, everybody, now it's kind of like passe. Everybody knows that advertising is manipulating us and creating a yeah. false sense of happiness. And right. So the book, weirdly, it's not passe to read it now. But the superficial surface reading of it is a little bit passe. In practice, DeLillo has a lot more to say in the book. But Matt, like you were saying, it's almost giving us individual scenes that speak to specific thematic ideas. But the movie isn't able to lasso them all together into a coherent yeah. like movie. No. In, in a way that the book can. I mean, it's funny because what you just said there a second ago, too, about... Um, American consumerism and uh, also too with advertising and how it's used as a way to mask our fear of the inevitability of death. That is illustrated early on through those examples that I just said. And then the movie then throws the religious element on top of that in the third act of saying, hey, here's another thing that we have constructed to deal with this existential problem. And it's like at that point, it almost feels like the movie is kind of telling its audience, do you get it? If you didn't get it before, hopefully you're getting it now. <laughs> yeah, there's also like on top of everything else, like white noise primarily is a satire of sure. American life. And the way that white noise, the film presents itself, it's a little unclear what they're being serious about and what they're be doing is satire at some Agreed. points. Like, no college ever has classrooms like what the dueling lectures scene takes place in. <laughs> like, that is some real hippy-dippy bullshit going on right there without desks and, you know, just these little carpeted risers that they're sitting on or whatever it's it's very strange i'm like are you trying to make a point about like really super liberal colleges like the new school or like what 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 is this like is this what's happening in your vision of 80s america i i don't it didn't quite come across. But maybe that, that yeah. you know, you just gotta view it once again through that like 19 early 1980s like mindset of uh, you know, we used to be so simple. We would teach English and mathematics, and now we're teaching uh, Hitler studies. You know, it's like, yeah, let me write about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't know how else ever to read into it other than like what Brendan was saying before, which is the book itself is already trying to juggle so much, but it can afford to do so because on the page you can do just that. In a movie, and also, too, this movie is not necessarily short. It's also not necessarily long, either. I almost feel like this could have been um, maybe like a, I don't know, two-part television event sort of thing, maybe. Maybe series? Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, totally. I, I feel like it would be too drawn out if it was like a six-part, maybe like four, you know, or so something very small. 
Yeah. But definitely a little bit longer than this, just to allow for some of this to breathe a bit more. And also, too, Dan, you bring up the tone of this movie. That's super important because I don't know if it's just I wanted to laugh, but I remember when I watched it the first time, I found it to be much funnier than on my second viewing that I just recently did watching it at home on Netflix. There are some parts that are funny, truly. But I did notice that there was a bit more of an inconsistency with the humor. And I definitely think that that's because there is this question about the tone and whether or not we are supposed to be taking it seriously. Like there's a scene where Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig uh, have a scene in, in their bedroom together where Greta Gerwig is just like delivering this fantastic monologue and she's crying and it's really, really well done and definitely peeling into her character's psyche in a way that is, I think, supposed to be taken seriously. But by that point in the movie, I'm I'm kind of not sure what I'm supposed to be taking seriously or not. Yeah, and I think what dovetails with that is going back to the kind of cartoonish or over-the-top element we keep talking about, I think one thing Bombach really misjudged is he seemed to think that the more over-the-top he made certain elements, the funnier they would be, which is not the case. And the book, and DeLillo in general, has a more dry sense of humor, which is why Bombach it's so peculiar. There's a device in the film where they overlap a lot of the dialogue tracks at once. So it's almost like huh, white noise. And, yeah. <laughs> it, and the book does not do that. It doesn't do anything where all the characters are kind of talking at once um, like that, where you have like a whole page of characters interrupting each other. That doesn't happen in the book at all. Now, I guarantee you, if you were to ask Noah Baumbach that, he would say, oh, it's a homage to Robert Altman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's an Altman track. You know, it's Nashville. Yeah. It's McCabe and Ms. Miller, whatever. But the, the, the thing is... <laughs> it is could that, be. It, perhaps. But I think even if you're going to be that generous, I mean, look, he's probably trying to make that kind of like, quote unquote, white noise. But I think what it does is it makes everything so heightened. And I think the key for... Any comedy where the vast majority of comedy is you need a contrast, right? For a joke to land, it needs to be bouncing off of what happened immediately beforehand. And white noise doesn't really do that. Um, the whole movie or most of the movie is at this kind of fever pitch um, where the characters are kind of overlapping what each other are saying with these very DeLillo lines. A lot of it is right from the book. Yeah. To a detriment, I think, um, which is weird, right? Because you would think, oh, so much of the dialogue made it into the movie. That's great. But I don't think it translates when these characters, uh, their lines are overlapped instead of on the page. You might have a paragraph of relatively normal dialogue before you have one of the characters make a crack about, oh, I need to look in the other cars to see how scared I should be. <laughs> or uh, when Don Cheadle uh, uh, compliments. Uh, Greta Gerwig's hair, your wife's hair is an important wonder. And it's like, what? (laughs) What? Right. And (laughs) on the page, there's a kind of build up and come down from those one liners. 
or there'll be like a whole paragraph of one kind of big epic comic thing, but then it winds down again. Whereas mm-hmm. I found the movie was trying to put all the one-liners almost back to back for a lot of it. And it's very confusing why he chose to do that. Cause it just doesn't, it doesn't play. Yeah. I think that is where it kind of lost me a bit, Brendan. Like there, they had that overlapping dialogue, especially in the first scene um, with the, with the kids the kitchen. at home. Yeah. In the yeah. Kitchen. And like, a lot I found that a lot of those lines that are with the uh, with the professors in the cafeteria or whenever they're hanging out together, like these lines are funny, but having them all so close together and overlapping like that so that we're only getting snippets of conversation, it doesn't work. It doesn't work as comedy anyway. And where it could work as a sort of like, none of these people are really listening to each other kind of thing, it also doesn't really work in that way either because everyone always responds in kind. So I, I'm, I too am at a loss for like why he chose to take that approach. I, I guess it's a way of getting at the density of ideas of the novel, but it, it, it doesn't work. Now I'll tell you though, two separate scenes that did make me laugh were Jack's interactions with the, with the uh, doctors, one in person and one over the phone. Oh yeah. It, it, they're very brief, but. You know, when he when he when he's with um the actor's uh, name, Francis Jew, just his overall tone and how chirpy he is about everything. And he says stuff like, oh, they have gleaming new equipment. It gleams. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny to me, almost like in a Coen Brothers sort of way. You know, yeah. like that kind of absurdist tone. Oh, God damn it. Now I wish the Coen Brothers had adapted this instead. Right. Oh, uh, and then I love this. I love the moment when he calls the other doctor on the phone and <laughs> it's like 10 o'clock at night. He's calling him at his house and he's like, you're calling me because your wife has memory lapse issues. If every patient called the doctor about memory lapse, what will we have? The ripple effect would be tremendous. <laughs> 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 and some of that was actually pretty funny and got a good chuckle out of me. Otherwise, yeah, there were times, even with Adam Driver's performance, who I like that he does like a little, you know, voice modulation. There's some makeup work being done to make him look slightly different. I, it looks like he also put on a little bit of weight for this, too. You, you could see it around like the cheekbones and such. Uh, but still, I don't know. I kept watching this and thinking to myself, this almost feels like this is a role that was made for... Nicolas Cage, and it almost feels like it's beneath Adam Driver. That's not to say anything bad about Nicolas Cage. I I just don't think that he was the right actor for this material. I completely agree. And ever since casting announcements came out, I sort of texted all of my DeLillo friends and all of us unanimously were like, what the fuck? Because... The adults in the book, the parents, the Gladneys, um, they're middle aged. Yeah. Um, like, I think they're in their late 40s or 50s. And I think that's important. I think the fact that they are so established and they're sort of hitting. <laughs> and, and, and they have more kids in the book. 
right? Uh, I actually don't remember. Um, I, I know like they that had more than four. They might have had. No, you're right. I think they had one or two more. Um, but I also think to, to Matt's point, the scenes that are more between like two people, I generally think are more successful than the crowd scene. Sure. Um, yeah. I found the, the most successful character in the whole movie to be Heinrich, the sort of wonder kid of the family, um, who's the one who's so knowledgeable about science and the toxic event and stuff like that. Um, because he, to me, embodied that tone of kind of seeming like a regular kid, but also seems like the kind of weirdo that you would see it like at lunchtime and he kind of sit on his own in the corner um, and he's spitting out all these spooky macabre facts. He, to me, got the balance right. Um, and I think, you know, look, Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig, amazing performers, right? And I just, generally speaking, was happy to see Greta Gerwig in an acting role again after a little while. She it, she really reminds you how sensational she can be when she's in front of the camera. But I just don't think they were the right people for these parts. And literally speaking, in the case of Adam Driver, he just looks weird. He looks off. Um and maybe the only way they could get it greenlit is if they aged it down and got movie stars. I'm sure that's part of it. But I don't I think that's the big reason for some of that disconnect. And the book really was and I, I don't mean this too literally because I actually don't even really like the book or I don't even really love the movie controversially. White Noise was kind of the fight club of the 80s. And I, I think to bring that home in any kind of a way. If you're going to make this into a movie, you need to create space within the narrative and the visuals for the ideas to emerge organically. And this is a movie that's constantly telling you the sort of one-liner zinger version of all of the book's themes. So none of it actually seems that deep. All of it seems kind of superficial. It's like if the whole movie was the equivalent of the scene in Fight Club where, you know, um, they're talking about satirically all of reality basically becoming named after different products, the Starbucks this or whatever, which is also a joke from David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. But I think that in the case of White Noise, like we were saying, miniseries, feature film, if you're going to adapt this, which, again, you probably shouldn't. You do need to create, I think you need to either remove more of the narrative and focus on one key element or make it longer. And don't make it so cartoonishly strange. Um, like one element I'm curious what you guys thought of, especially you, Matt, because you came into this new. Did you get any sense that the film was trying to comment on let's say in quotations, crowds as some kind of an element. It's briefly mentioned in some of the Hitler talk, but did you get a sense the whole film was trying to comment on crowds as kind of an entity? Oh, no. Yeah, like that's a big focus of the book and a big focus for DeLillo in general. Why crowds come together um, in terms of uh, religion, politics, war, uh, 
Uh, he's really fond of um, crowds around baseball games and sports events, but also protests and terrorism and all of these different themes that sort of connect us to each other and why. And I felt like Bombach was kind of, this is going to be a reach, but bear with me. It reminded me a lot of um, uh, the Order of the Phoenix movie. <laughs> In the sense where the movie seemed to me mainly for people who had read the book. So it tips its hat to book readers all the time while leaving new audiences kind of empty, if that makes sense. No, I, I in, that, in that regard, yeah, I get, I get exactly what it is that you mean. And even as you're explaining it, I can sense that pervading the work here. I can, I, I, I can definitely sense it, but I didn't get it while I was watching the movie as much. Um, and that's, that's a shame. And once again, it just goes back to what we were saying before about can this novel as is actually be adapted in a way that it would make sense in cinematic form. And I think that's why everybody was saying, oh, it's considered unfilmable. I mean, yeah. I mean, listen, you could film almost anything nowadays, right? So when people say, like you said earlier, well, what is considered unfilmable? It's not so much that they can't shoot it. It goes back to what Dan was saying before, which is just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I just don't think that the... I, I, I like the ideas that the movie has, but the story, the characters, like the fact that we have all these kids... I would have like I would have liked it so much more if they only had one kid as opposed to four or however I think it is four because he's got kids from previous marriages they've got one kid together she's got a kid from a previous marriage as well and it's like why at that point why they they're not getting suitable character development Don Cheadle is actually one of the more interesting performances in this movie and he gets completely forgotten about you know it's like this movie's focus is too all over the place. Yeah. And it forgets what's most important, story and character. Well, and I think, Dan, like like what Dan was saying, novels have the luxury of allowing plots to ebb and flow, to kind of uh, cohere and then go off on their own path as long as the themes and drama can connect them. There's not as great a burden as having every element of plotting tightly lead to the next, right? It's very difficult to convey that in cinematic terms, which is why also the most famous sequence in the book is not in the movie. It made me so mad. <laughs> yeah, and I get why, because it doesn't have a quote-unquote plot relevance, but it because the movie, or I should just say the text in general, is so thematically re like integrated... I thought it was a mistake to leave it out. Dan, do you want to describe what it is or do you want me to? Uh, you can go right ahead. It's been okay. too long since I've read the book <laughs> to really say. <laughs> All right, fair enough. So in the book, there's this scene very early on where the Gladneys are going to kind of a sideshow, side of the street attraction. And it's quote unquote, the most photographed barn in America. And the reason people go is because they want to get a photograph of it. And in a sense, the photograph of the barn becomes more meaningful, more, let's say, real than the barn itself. 
And this is considered one of the all-time most iconic, quote-unquote, postmodern um, set pieces in literary history, certainly into the 80s, because it kind of represents the whole movement, right? This idea of it's not the thing itself that has any meaning. It's the image of the thing that gives any kind of sustenance to us. But if the image of the thing is what's giving us meaning, where does it come from? It's not the object anymore. It's the classic example of how if you go to a McDonald's and you bite into a cheeseburger, the cheeseburger doesn't look as good as it looks on the advertisements. Maybe it doesn't even taste as good as the advertisements make it look. So in a sense, you are comparing a real cheeseburger to a fake image cheeseburger. And the image of the McDonald's cheeseburger almost seems more real in your mind than what you're actually eating. And it's how our sense of reality has been warped. Obviously, this is the whole idea of the matrix, right? And that's why this line of thinking became kind of the genesis of the matrix. Well, this most photographed barn in America opens the book to frame the whole novel as being how reality has been, become shaped this way as a way of escaping our fear of death and how we're trying to find inner meaning, a spiritual almost sense of well-being when we're living in a reality of image and death and consumerism. And I think that particular scene really would have set up the rest of the film as being, no, you know what? We're connecting all of this through theme and image, not through plot. But by that same token, would the movie have even been made if that was the case? Because that would take emphasis away from this kind of disaster movie angle and the sort of paranoia thriller angle of the last 45 minutes. So it's very unusual what it's doing. Has anybody ever interviewed Don DeLillo and asked him what he thought about Instagram? <laughs> oh god i don't know <laughs> no 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 it's all very interesting there what you just brought up especially regarding that one scene um i do i do want to ask though in regards to the disaster elements and then also to like the final chapter of this movie uh what you all thought of seeing you know noah Baumbach deploy sci-fi action thriller elements like th these are sort of genre set pieces that we've never seen him do before and while I don't think personally it was anything extraordinary, I was just kind of impressed that I was seeing him do this for a change. I, I, I wouldn't put it up there against any of his contemporaries who clearly are much better at it than he is. But it was just more like pat on the back. Good for you. A, a effort for trying. Yeah. And I, I think it's hit or miss, to be honest. Mm -hmm. The. Two most successful kind of spectacle moments for me. I actually love this scene. The sequence where Jack is filling up a tank of gas. Yeah, yeah. While they're on the side of the road from the airborne toxic event. And he doesn't see it, but you slowly see this black, almost demonic smoke slowly obscure the sky behind him. And the sound design of that scene is very potent, where you're hearing the sort of, sort of creaking of certain um, mechanical elements, the door or a sign, etc. And you do feel, for really the only time in the film, that sense of dread that I think the whole film wanted you to experience. Agreed. But I will also say this. 
Nope did it better. Nope nope did it much, much better, for sure. I also thought that wide shot of the smoke with the sort of red stuff illuminated through the lightning was very, very good. Once again, Stranger Things did it better. I was wondering (laughs) if Zoe would be on this episode. (laughs) Make the Stranger Things comparison for all of us. I uh, just that that is easily to me the best sequence of the film. Like easily that whole second act with the airborne event, airborne toxic event. It's far and away the best thing. I mean, you're getting some visual effects work thrown in there. Um I, I actually do think visually speaking, uh outside of even just the visual effects, but the way that Lowell Crawley uses uh, shadow and color um, all throughout this movie. I found it to be uh, rather interesting and vibrant and, you know, definitely produced some very vivid images, especially like in scenes where you wouldn't expect it. Like for me, I I actually do like the motel scene towards the end of the film. And a lot of it has to do with the way that Lowell Crawley shoots it and emphasizes certain colors uh, within the motel room. And I do get a sense of, that tension that we're talking about here in the airborne toxic event uh, sequence. I I do get a little bit of that in the motel room, but I do hate then that it is undercut by a comedic moment at the end. And then we're kind of like back into slapstick humor. It almost feels like Um, I I wish that instead they had been able to carry that tone more consistently all the way through to the end of the film, because I was really much, I was really enjoying uh, what Bombach was doing in that scene uh, up until then. I actually agree. And that goes into the De Palma elements. It very much, weirdly, I'm going to make kind of a weird comparison. The movie this reminded me the most from a filmmaker point of view was Bridge of Spies, where Spielberg kind of got that script and was like, oh, I, I don't get to make one movie. I get to make three within one film. I get to make kind of a spy film. Um a law legal thriller. Um, I get to make this kind of buddy film. I get to make this sort of war movie. Um, This to me felt similar where Bombach saw this as an opportunity to make, oh, I can make a disaster movie. I can make a literary adaptation, which he's been wanting to make a literary adaptation for ages. He infamously wanted to adapt Jonathan Franzen's famous novel, The Corrections, uh, into an HBO series, and it didn't get picked up. But also he got to do his De Palma movie, And I think when he's able to go into Spielberg mode and De Palma mode, it works better, actually, than when he's trying to make it a literary or a literary adaptation of DeLillo. But you know what he does in the process, though? Like, I like it as an exercise of, okay, spread your wings, you know, fly off a little bit. But I want you to come back to the nest and I want you to be Noah Baumbach again. I'm very curious what his next films will be like. Right? Yeah. Because I'm not a the biggest fan of his work. His stuff is a little too dry and try hard quirky for me at times. I do like some of his movies uh, quite a bit, but not I wouldn't say I'm his biggest fan. I do uh, love Marriage Story. I'm very curious. Will he take some of the more potent visual tools he found in this and bring it to his subsequent movies? Because he isn't someone you'd think of as a strong visual filmmaker, Matt, no. like we were saying before. No, absolutely not. No way. And that's like the thing that I'm hoping that we'll see moving forward with better material. I think that he could produce something 
way more interesting on a visual level than he's ever uh, done before. And then it will hopefully resonate stronger with people, you know, because Marriage Story clearly resonated because it was so dialed in on the actor's performances and it wasn't getting in the way of that. The writing was there. The performances were there. You don't have to do much uh, with the camera at that point as a filmmaker. You really don't. And so here he's doing way more than I've ever seen him do before. And I'm digging it because it's just so different. But is this going to be like Adam McKay, where this is the new thing and this is his style now moving forward? I kind of hope on one hand, I'd be curious, but I'm also leaning towards hope not because while going back to the McKay comparison, where I do feel like with Big Short, Vice, and, uh, you know, with Don't Look Up, you know, and listen, I, I get it if you don't like these movies, and I, I understand if you don't like the style, but one can point to it and definitively say that is an Adam McKay movie now, so much so that other filmmakers I see sometimes doing uh, these, like, wild, like, editing techniques and things like that, I, you know, I immediately just think of him now, uh, the same way that when we see people... Uh, centering their objects and images uh, in a, in the frame uh, with pastel colors, or you know, we think, oh, so they're doing a Wes Anderson shot, you know. And I feel like with Noah Baumbach, the style is not distinctive enough with what he's done here for me to say, oh, this is like going to be a definitive Noah Baumbach style moving forward. No, what he did prior to this was very much what he's been known for and what we've become accustomed to. Now, I, I know a lot of indie filmmakers who also shoot their movies the exact same way that Noah Baumbach does. So I think that it comes down to both how he directs and the sharpness of his screenplays. So, I mean, I, I prefer, I gotta say, after watching this, fun experiment, you know? I, I enjoyed seeing something different. But I don't know if I want to see him continuing to rip off other filmmakers in an attempt to find a new style. To me, he already has it. I just think he bit off more than he can chew with this particular choice of adaptation. And you know what? I admire him for it. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, you have Netflix willing to give you all the money in the world to make this movie that's like sort of a dream project. Absolutely. Go do it. But, like, <laughs> the results here, um, like, good on you for trying. Uh, now go back to, you know, the stuff that you're actually good at doing. Go back to the stories that you're good at telling. I do think that he made some significant visual strides in this movie. Um, there's a lot of just visual storytelling going on particularly in um the second and third sequences of the film um the aerial uh toxic event and the um the scene at the motel but overall this just feels like such a step down from the um the the clearness the clarity yeah. of his previous works even when those works were complex you always knew you know, what Noah Baumbach felt about what he was putting on screen. And in this, I just got the feeling like he's incredibly proud of himself for doing this. 
and that's it. <laughs> uh, what I want to do is I do want to head over to final thoughts. So something that we didn't mention that you want to bring up or something you want to reiterate. And we can go over to Brendan first for this one. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Um, I, I think I summed everything up over the course of the podcast. I generally think, as I say, it's a noble attempt. Kind of like what you guys were just saying. Good on him. He got to make this dream project. The biggest surprise for me is that the elements of direct adaptation were the least successful and the elements where he was flexing his cinematic muscles were some of the most successful. And while I agree with both of you that I don't want him to necessarily try to make, do something like that every movie, I would be curious and interested if he can continue looking into more visually driven movies instead of his more writerly or literary movies. Um, so it's interesting thinking about how that can influence the rest of his career. Um, but overall, I, I really am curious now how the rest of the DeLillo adaptations will go. He's a very difficult author to adapt. You're really trying to take on one of the great giants of literature when you're taking on his stuff. And I, I think it can, honestly, I'll be surprised, Matt, if when we do the future reviews for those, if they're going to be much better than this, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that being a continuing issue for sure. <laughs> Dan, how about you? The opening sequence when giving the lecture about car crashes. Yes. Saying that they represent American optimism. and <laughs> I'm like, are, are, are you trying to tell us that this movie is like a car crash <laughs> with a quote unquote lightheartedness and carefree enjoyment that foreign films don't have that, that that's not entirely true there. Noah. I mean, <laughs> it does very much feel like an American movie in that sense. It does. I think this film is far more European than <laughs> than American in a lot of ways. Interesting. Although it's it's American in its ideas, but in its presentation strikes me as much more European. Interesting. Okay. I, I didn't I didn't quite get that as much. I, I actually thought it was more so leaning towards American style more so than anything. I, I think I, I I get that. I just think that there is a European directors, foreign directors, non-American directors tend to embrace subtlety more. And while there's a lot of American stuff here with the, you know, with the special effects and these big sort of, they're not action sequences, but they are kind of action sequences. Yeah. Um, that's very American. But the subtlety and depth of the storytelling strike me as much more European in flavor. I, I did love this one moment when they're evacuating and someone like 
pulls around and tries to go ahead of the line and one of the kids points it out Adam Driver says technically that's illegal and then boom car crash yeah (laughs) applause beautiful beautiful moment I mean Noah even stages his own car chase in this movie is it the first car chase he's ever done I think so I think so yeah yeah once again I thought it was you know kind of unremarkable like George Miller probably watched it and said that's cute. Uh, but what I thought was really cute was the uh, stinger at the end when the little kid just goes again. <laughs> yes, that was that was beautiful. That was great. Uh, Bill Camp. Yes. Always the best in every ensemble. Don't we deserve attention for our suffering? <laughs> we are like lepers in medieval times. <laughs> <laughs> Is it fear news? <laughs> That, oh my gosh! That bit to me was the most potent bit of satire because it felt like it was directly commenting on our current time as well as the 1980s. I thought it was great. I mean, the phrase "quarantine" was said out loud. I I, I completely agree with you on that front. <laughs> yeah, I, I I do think that in general that that second segment with the um the toxic event is the strongest of the film's three segments in terms of it adopts a more consistent tone with regards to the satire that it's working with. Yes. And I found it to be much more effective in terms of visual storytelling. I love that shot of Adam driver filling the car tank with gas and the clouds sort of passing overhead and behind him, obscuring the sign, the shell station sign. thought that was really well, well done. And I also really loved Adam Driver's delivery of the line delivery of I am tentatively scheduled to die. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I like that line because he says it, you know, with a full acute awareness now of knowing that his death is not necessarily imminent, but like he knows it's coming like there's been and, and not like. He knows, oh, it's happening in six months, it's happening in a year. He doesn't actually know. And when he tries to get, like, the clarity on the severity of it, nobody can actually, like, tell him for sure. But I found that amusing because, I mean, honestly, the two of you, how often do you go about your day and just think to yourself consciously, yeah, I'm going to die someday? Almost never. All the time. No, I'm <laughs> but I mean, like, it, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it sometimes creeps in, you know, and maybe that's a motivating factor for wanting to do good while we're still here. But I like that the character is given a reason to think about it. And what does that reveal about human nature as a result of that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And I think that, look, I I didn't say this in my wrap up, but DeLillo is particularly good at capturing the specifically American brand of death anxiety that pervades (laughs) through a lot of our culture. And I find it particularly moving. Um, And I would just advise anyone who watched this film and felt it didn't quite capture that, but would like to see what DeLillo was up to just to read the book. It's not even particularly long. Completely agree with Brendan on that. I did particularly like Adam Driver's performance and how Baumbach wrote that character to be like the typical 
oblivious, myopic, uh, white, middle-aged man. Great satire from him on the whole, like, oh, nothing's going to happen. It's all going to be fine, because why wouldn't it be fine? Because life is always fine for people like us. We'll be fine. I mean, in a way, thinking about the pandemic itself, I I can kind of relate to that, because even when everything shut down and people were really scared and... No one had any idea what was happening in the early stages. I don't know about you all, but I kind of had this mentality of if I just stay inside and limit exposure, it'll all blow over. Everything will be fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, I, and it shocked me that there were people who could not do that one simple thing. I mean, I, I'm not saying I was that carefree about it, but I think that that's a defense mechanism that we use when there is that level of uncertainty. I, I, yeah. I'm not kidding when I say this. We were actually just having a conversation last night on New Year's Eve, me and my me and my friends about, oh, you know, we're so close to the city. You think if it ever got attacked, like, what would you do, you know, in that situation? And it's like, it, it, it like it brought up like <laughs> so many responses that revealed so much about like just how we view disaster or how we confront our fear of potential threats and death in a way that I, I just found to be so interesting because once again, not every day that you're thinking about this or having these conversations with people. And if this movie can get you to do that, it's like, well, then what's the benefit? Okay. So I talked about something and now I'm a little depressed and now what? I mean, there's something to be said maybe about being prepared, but not in a crazy overdone sort of way, you know, but like more in a, hey, when shit goes down, I'll be cool and collected and know how to handle everything. Well, it's interesting you bring that up and not to go on a tangent, but one of the big things I studied in college, I have, I have a psych degree that for the most part remains a very expensive piece of paper because it has nothing to do with my job. Um <laughs> One of the things I focused on in some of the labs I ran was uh, actually, funnily enough, death anxiety, Um, Mm -hmm. specifically through the lens of um, death anxiety in the political spectrum and how conservatives tend to experience more death anxiety than liberals because, and this is all painting with really broad strokes, right? Um, People on the left have a more optimistic view of things um, generally speaking, whereas conservatives always think the end is nigh and everything is bad and everything is going downhill and blah, blah, blah. So they have to be super prepared. And what you're talking about, Matt, reminds me a lot of Hugh Jackman's character from Prisoners. Yeah. Right. Um, that type of mentality. And I was raised Catholic and I know um, a large amount of very conservative people and a lot of those people are the type that have a bunch of soup cans in the basement um, because who knows what will happen. Maybe we'll be attacked or whatever. And ironically, that none of them thought COVID counted as something serious to take care of. But I bring that up because I think that the book and what DeLillo is trying to get at is trying to confront you with the exact questions, Matt, you just brought up as something you talked about on New Year's. Um, How will we each individually respond to catastrophe? How will we each individually respond to death? Is it religion? Is it to be prepared? Is it a political ideology? Is it to think about staying inside? 
Um, and COVID-19 definitely kind of was a litmus test of that. And I guarantee you that's why Netflix, in part, greenlit the film because of those parallels. I just want to say for the record, it won't matter. You'll be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Not untrue. I mean, you know, maybe it matters for the people that are left behind. And if you want to think about them, that's another thing. But for you, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, all right. Dan, any other thoughts? Um, yeah. Uh, best end credits of the year by a mile. Oh, yeah. I completely agree with that. <laughs> that song, New Body Roomba by LCD Sound System. Banger. Fantastic. Um, I appreciate Queen Jodie Turner-Smith's uh, commitment to musical credit sequences in 2022 between this and after Yang. I admire Noah Baumbach for casting Andre Benjamin specifically and only to do that little shoulder shimmy at the end of the film. <laughs> and, okay, I'm about to like show my age, but I know that A&P, that is a specific store that literally walked out of my memories and into life in this movie. I was not at all surprised to see just Gontor's name as the production designer uh, lead in the credits because just Gontor is one of the all time greats. And again, great work here. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, Looking at those uh, supermarkets, it, it suddenly dawned on me at a certain point, oh, wow, this is not shot somewhere. Like, this this had to be made. Mm-hmm. You could not find rows of food, like, that perfectly aligned and that colorized. <laughs> Impossible. So I, I really, really admire the attention to detail in recreating those supermarkets. And all the, all the 80s packaging, I... <laughs> I, yeah. I was I was living for it honestly <laughs> as a ch- as a child of the 80s this was all like exactly my childhood. <laughs> I mean even the scene where uh Jack is in his garage and he's sifting through the garbage oh, in his God, garage. Yeah. Even that I was like I don't think that they just like took random pieces of garbage and just threw it on the floor. I think every individual piece was hand selected because it it looks far too colorized, almost in, in a way to kind of try to create, especially when they showed the overhead shot of him standing amongst all the garbage, to try and create like a picturesque image. I, I was like, oh, man, this is if I'm right. I, I just once again, love the attention to detail there. All right. So for my final thoughts here, uh, we pretty much said everything I, I think that I wanted to say. Oh, I, I do. I do get a nice chuckle out of um, him early on. Jack saying it's a great source of embarrassment that I don't speak German, even though I teach this Hitler studies course. Uh, but I also once again, all that went nowhere. And I just I, I don't know why it was there. Still still trying to piece it all together. I can say that in the book, it is as much a satire of academia as it is anything else. Which I understand. And the movie just doesn't do that. Yeah. I can see that it's there, but it doesn't connect to anything else. And that's the problem I have. Well, those types of scenes and elements vanish mm-hmm. after the first half hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's 
speaking to your issue, right? Like, yeah, that stuff runs through way more of the novel than it does in the film. So it all kind of fits together. I like when he uh, Jack is talking to the man behind the desk uh, working on the computer and he's telling him that this is a simulated acu- uh, evacuation. And he's like, you know, this evacuation isn't simulated. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like <laughs> telling him how, oh, no, no, no. But, you know, don't worry. In the simulation, it works out this way. And that's what we're basing this off of. <laughs> I I did love that whole thing. And I loved it in the book, too, because it's like, yeah, you know, we just have to take into account that the simulation for this time is real. And that's <laughs> going to introduce all these variables that it won't quite <laughs> run the way the simulation is supposed to. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's, the, it's, it's like hilarious. the photograph barn stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like reality versus unreality, etc. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Lars Eidinger. <laughs> Just going to leave it at that. I don't want to reveal spoilers or anything like that. But once again, I, I particularly enjoyed that motel sequence. And then finally, I'm going to end my final thoughts with a question for the two of you. Are you heart sick or soul sick? Oh, God. <laughs> See all of the above? <laughs> yeah, it's like both, both, both is good. Okay. It is a mess. I admire the ambition. I'm curious about where Noah Bombach goes from here. Watching it a second time, I definitely did not enjoy it as much as I did the first time. I think the first time just had like that novelty to it of, oh wow, I'm seeing something radically different than anything that this filmmaker has ever done before and that was just very exciting and thrilling for me in a lot of ways uh watching it again i definitely realized how much everything did not connect so i'm going to give it a six out of ten and i gotta admit one point of that alone is just for the sheer ambition of it all another point is probably just for the end credit sequence too if i'm being honest because I sat through all seven minutes of that and I enjoyed every single moment of it. I love the shot selection. It made me want to see a Noah Baumbach musical at some point. Yeah, that song is awesome. Dan, how about you? So I am at a six plus bonus points for the new body rumba segment, which bumps it up to a seven rounding up. Yeah, that's that's where I originally was on the first viewing. So, yeah, we're we're pretty much aligned there. <laughs> Brendan, I think it's the lowest score I've given on the podcast. Oh, that'll happen. Don't worry. We're heading into <laughs> Q1 of the year. So, yeah, it can just get lower and lower. Um, I am going to give this a, a five out of ten. OK, sounds good to me. As far as the awards prospects go for White Noise, uh, Adam Driver, Golden Globe nominated. Uh, A lot of people are pointing towards the fact that Paul Thomas Anderson got nominated for Inherent Vice back in 2014, another novel that was considered to be a tough adaptation. Uh, So some people think that it's possible that White Noise could see Noah Baumbach get into adapted screenplay for like a similar feat of adaptation here. Uh, And also some people thinking, too, hey, Marriage Story was such a success Uh, Maybe he's in the good graces of the Academy now where they do start nominating him a little bit more consistently. What are our thoughts on that first adapted screenplay? I think he's definitely in the mix. It helps a lot that adapted screenplay is a relatively weak field this year. 
Yeah. Um, and he does have, you know, I think writers will greatly respect the work that he did to attempt to adapt this. Although having seen it now, I, I, I wonder. <laughs> yeah. I actually have him just outside. Like, I definitely think he's in the mix, but I ultimately don't think that the movie is connecting enough with people for them to put it in. It's a much more mixed movie than Inherent Vice in terms of both critical and audience reception. Yeah. Um, And I think the bigger question will be, will he have enough goodwill off of his previous uh, nomination for Marriage Story to get him to slide in? Because I think an example of just that incredible amount of goodwill was Nightmare Alley with Guillermo del Toro, a movie that, you know, did not do well at the box office, had a sort of mixed positive reception with critics, um, but it wound up getting a lot of nominations. And I think a lot of that had to do with just the amount of goodwill off Shape of Water. Will this be similar? Honestly, I don't think so. But if he does get in, I think that's going to be part of why. Beyond that, uh, New Body Roomba was nominated by the Critics' Choice for Best Original Song. Uh, it did not get a Golden Globe nomination, but it has been, if you ask most people, um, especially people that appreciate a little bit of rock music, uh, it has been a very consistently praised element here. Uh, but I feel that it, too, is also in jeopardy because I'm not saying that the two are totally linked, but Danny Elfman curiously missing from the Oscar shortlist for best original score. And it just made me wonder, hmm, are the two tied? And also, too, if it was such a strong contender, why did it not get in at Globes? But Adam Driver got into the comedy musical actor category. I mean, well, that's sort of easily explainable by the fact that it's the Globes. And sure. They do stupid shit like that all the time. But they are also one of the very few precursors we have for song. Yeah, but like they might not have liked the movie, but they liked they like Adam Driver. Therefore, he gets nominated. You know, like it's just very I don't know. The Globes are weird. And I I don't know. I don't really know what to do with New Body Room, but this is one of those movies where I feel like it probably should be contending in way more categories than it will end up contending in. And weirdly enough, I could still see it walking away with like no nominations on the Oscar nomination morning. Like I'm with you, Dan, this could do like maybe three nominations and, or it could do like zero. Wait a minute. What's the third? Uh, production design. Oh, okay. I was I, for a minute. I thought you were going to say Adam Driver. <laughs> no, <laughs> I I know that it's it's funny because I actually was talking with somebody uh, offline and they said, hey, you know, what if he shows up at SAG next week? And I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah, first of all, that ain't going to happen. Second of all, even if it did, I still wouldn't entertain the idea of him getting in at that point. I mean, SAG Golden Globe combo, Matt. It, no, it's too. It's too weird of a performance. I mean, I, I don't disagree, but I'm just saying SAG Golden Globe combo is pretty good. I understand, but let's pump the brakes. It ain't happening. Look, I, I agree. He's not getting a SAG nomination. 
the production design that you mentioned, I, I would love to see that happen. I actually hope that it ends up getting a, at least an Art Directors Guild nomination. Yeah, I think that's a lot more likely. Sure. But yeah, it getting an Oscar nomination, I can't see it happening. Also, too, it's become very uh, a, apparently super clear to, I think, everyone that uh, Netflix is focusing on other contenders and not so much this one. I, they are definitely still continuing to push the song. That I know. But I, I think other uh, other prospects for it, for things like Picture or Driver or Greta Gerwig, like those are not happening. Yeah, not not happening. No. OK. All right. Well, that'll do it here for our review of White Noise here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Brendan, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the Internet. You can find me on uh, Twitter or Letterboxd at uh, Metaplex Movies, or you can just search Brendan Hodges and I will pop right up. Dan Bear, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film, as long as it is still alive. And you can find me elsewhere on Letterboxd and Post at Dance and Dan. That's right. We haven't had like a Twitter death scare in a couple of days now, have we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, literally a couple days when I had like some trouble reading my messages and that's about it how are we all going to deal with the death of our reality interesting anyway (laughs) you can find me on twitter at next best picture thank you so much everyone for listening to the next best picture podcast we are proud to be part of the evergreen podcast network and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts be sure to leave us a review on apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show we appreciate your feedback and your support which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.